0: All right. Come on in and grab a seat. Welcome to Theological equipping. Come on in. I like how the room is more weighted towards this side. It's kind of like if you've ever been to the wedding where like everybody loves the bride, but no one really loves the groom, and like half the church is over here. It's good. All right. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, what we do before we do our service. In Theological Equipping Class today, we're going to be talking about marriage, and then in the service, Jeff is going to be talking about God's wrath. Maybe those are the same subject for you. I don't know where you're at in your marriage. Maybe those are the same thing, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me give you a ton of preliminary information before we get into this lesson, okay? So a few things. Number one. Today, we're talking about a theology of marriage. We're not talking about, you know, seven steps to a healthy marriage or how to communicate in your marriage or something like that. There are times for that, but that's not the purpose of this class. This this class is not... Uh, you know, practical, how mad should you be at your spouse? Should you ever sleep in different beds when you're fighting? That's not what we're going over today. Today we're going over a theology of marriage. And here's why we're doing this is because we're studying the topic of anthropology, all right? Anthropology, which is the fancy seminary word for the doctrine of mankind. Anthropos in Greek is the, the word for man or human or humankind. And so we've been studying anthropology. And we've been looking at the essential nature of man. We've been looking at uh, the fact that mankind is made in two genders, male and female. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about marriage because marriage is a big facet of what it means to be human. Now, um, also, I need to say this. We're not going to be talking a ton about singleness today, but I want to say this because I think this is really important. Singleness is a biblical option. If you feel called to be single or if you find yourself in a season where you are currently single, at least in that season God has given you the gift of singleness, and you can equally glorify God. It's not as though we have a tendency to sometimes think that marriage is the norm and the goal, and singleness is something that people are just doing until they can get married again, but that's not the case. Biblically, being single is a biblical God-honoring option. In fact, Jesus is single, and He lives a full human life. So if you are single, let me just encourage you and say you glorify God equally. In fact, when it comes to ministry, the Apostle Paul is going to say that there's a sense in which it's better to be single, that you can actually spend more time ministering, which is the opposite of how we have a tendency to think about it. Right? So we have a tendency to think, man, this person would be a really great pastor because they're married and their marriage helps them be a better pastor. Paul makes the opposite argument. Paul seems to say that if someone's single, they have more time to be available for ministry. So just to encourage you that if you're single, that is good and righteous. You can honor God. Marriage and sexuality is not required to uh, live a God-honoring life. See also Paul. See also Jesus, etc. Okay? Some more preliminary stuff before we get into the lesson. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be dealing with some topics that we like to call it Parkway Spicy. Spiceway, spicy is kind of a, a euphemistic... So what would I say? Spiceway. Hey. We're going to start a new ministry to singles called Spiceway here at Parkway. We think that'll get them here. Uh, spicy here at Parkway. And uh, what I mean by that is that they're a little bit controversial. So over the next four weeks, here's what we're doing. Today we're doing marriage and a little bit of sexuality because that's a big part of marriage. Next week we're doing divorce and remarriage. The week after that, we're going to do uh, homosexuality, and the week after that, we're going to do transgenderism. Because we're on this topic of anthropology, we're going to hit some of these cultural hot topics, and so I need to give some preliminary info on this. First, the reason we're doing this is not to be cool. The reason we're doing this is not to be controversial. The reason we're doing this is because these are topics addressed in the Bible, okay? We are not allowed to say that we're unashamed of the Bible, but then not preach on certain topics, all right? Uh, Transgenderism, cross-dressing, these kind of things are addressed in the Bible, homosexuality is addressed in the Bible, marriage is addressed in the Bible, divorce and remarriage is addressed in the Bible. That's primarily why we're doing this. I've seen a lot of churches that will basically preach about 90% of the Bible, but then when they get to certain topics, they just think that's too much or that's just uh, somehow profane or bad or something like that. We don't hold that. We are here to preach all of God's Word unashamedly, which also means that we are going to have to talk some over the next four weeks, including today, about sexuality, okay? Now, we're not going to make anything, we're not going to say anything salacious, we're not going to say anything that uh, is tempting, we're not going to say anything that's inappropriate, we're only going to teach what's in the Bible, but... Here's why we're doing this. One, it's in the Bible. Number two, if you and your kids don't learn about this topic from the Bible, where are you going to learn about it? Okay? You're going to learn about it from the world. The average age that a child first sees pornography is between the ages of 9 and 11. So if you're thinking, maybe these subjects are above my kid's head, I guarantee you they're not. They're already thinking about this, talking about this, maybe even viewing this. And so hearing sexuality from the biblical perspective is what they need. They don't need that from the Internet or the locker room or something like that. Additionally, one more guard uh, so you don't get mad. We sent out an email to everybody who's a parent here about two weeks ago just saying that over the next four weeks, we're going to be dealing with some of these topics that relate to sexuality, okay? So it's your decision as a parent. If you don't want your kids in here, that's totally fine. Again, we're not saying anything that we think is going to be inappropriate. Uh, We would encourage you to have your kids in here where they can hear it too, but that's your call as a parent. You with me? Everybody good? What's he going to say? What's he going to say next? Let's get into this uh, lesson. Let's get into this lesson. Definition What is marriage? A theology of marriage. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman, as defined by creation and biblical revelation, into a union that involves a lifelong covenant for the purpose of intimate companionship, sexual expression, joy, procreation of the human race, and to glorify God by mirroring the relationship of Christ and the church. How good is that definition? That's the best definition. Where did we get that definition from? Parkway's statement of faith. All right? Spiceway. Parkway's statement of faith. That's where we got this definition. And so you'll notice several things about this definition. First of all, notice that it's between one man and one woman. Notice that man and woman is defined by creation and biblical revelation. We had to add that clarifier in there as culture becomes increasingly gray on this issue. The Bible remains to be black and white into a union that involves, and then we mentioned the purposes of marriage. There's not just one purpose of marriage. It's not that I just get married, married just to have kids, or I get married just for sexual expression, or I get married just for companionship. It's all of these things. Now, some of these things are not required. There are people, for example, who get married and are unable to have children. They're unable to procreate. That doesn't mean that they have any less of a marriage. Uh, but that is a great definition to start with what marriage is. In the Bible, marriage consists of two things, okay? Covenant plus consummation equals marriage. <laughs> I'm going to just leave it as an M. I'm not going to write it all out there. Okay, equals M. Now it looks more mathy. It looks more algebra. Covenant plus consummation equals marriage. Those are the two components you have to have biblically to have a marriage. Okay? If you just have covenant, you have all kinds of covenants, right? So you have all kinds of contracts. You have all kinds of agreements. Just because you agree to take a loan from your bank, you're not married. Just because you agree to go into business with somebody, you're not married. Okay, So covenant alone does not equal marriage, nor does consummation alone, okay? So, in the Bible, when two people come together uh, for sexual intimacy and they are not married, that is not a marriage. That is considered fornication. In fact, there's laws in the Old Testament where if a man, for example, seduces a virgin and lies with her, he then is required to see if he can try to marry her, things like this. And so, uh, but these two things are what's required for marriage. Marriage has these two components. Now, it looks different in different societies, right? So in the U.S., you typically have to have a minister that's licensed by the state to do this, but if you're in some tribe in Africa, you might have some ceremony, you might not, etc. but there is this idea of covenant, and there is this idea of consummation, and you have to have both to have a marriage, okay? What is an annulment? Let me just say this real quick. If you are somebody who's married to somebody else, and there has been both covenant and consummation, and you've been legitimately married, there is no such thing as an annulment. All right? The state defines annulment as a faultless divorce, but that's not, the, that's not a biblical idea. Okay? Annulment is only when there's no actual marriage that happens. So if you marry somebody and it turns out that somebody is your sister, you could get an annulment, because no real marriage should have happened. Or if there is covenant but the marriage is never consummated, there can be an annulment. These are the two components you need to have a marriage. But once you have these two components, the only thing that remains after that is either death or divorce. Okay? Is either death or divorce, as far as things that break the marriage. So with that in mind, let's get into where does marriage and sexuality come from. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay? So, what God does is He says, part of the purpose of creating woman is for marriage, is for companionship. So, He takes a rib of Adam and creates a woman. All right? Uh, by the way, in English, this is easy, easy to see. Man, the word man, and the word woman are related. Okay? It's the same way in Hebrew. Ish and Isha. Ish is man, Isha is woman. This doesn't work as well if you have a, uh, let's say, Spanish translation of the Bible, that out of uh, hombre was taken mujer or something like that. But you see it here in uh, in English as well as you would in Hebrew. So three things I want you to see from this passage. Other than this is the first fact. Marriage and sexuality is God's idea, okay? We have a tendency sometimes to feel like we invented that. Like that wasn't God's idea. He just kind of had mankind in the garden or whatever. Marriage and sexuality is God's idea. Sex is God's idea for marriage. That is his wedding present to you. Okay? Your aunt, she gets you a toaster. Right? God gives you your spouse. Okay? So a few things I want you to see about this passage. Number one, marriage is meant to mirror the Trinity. Marriage is meant to mirror the Trinity. Okay? That within a marriage, you have two becoming one. You have two distinct persons that are seen in a sense as one. Okay? A benity, if you will. A twinity. A trinity of two. It's meant to mirror the trinity. Now, it's not a perfect image of the trinity, right? There's nothing that's like the trinity. In the same way that you can't have any analogies of the trinity, like ice and water and steam or anything like that, you also can't make the trinity an analogy of anything. But you do see some hints of this idea of marriage meant to image the trinity, where you have two persons that within the sexual union are seen somehow as one. Number two. Marriage creates a new family. Notice, for all the mother-in-law jokes... By the way, so we went to the rodeo uh, Friday night, and uh, I'm not a huge rodeo guy, I don't know if you can tell, but I enjoy going. My dad always gets tickets, he grew up in Weatherford. And so uh, we go, and uh, the rodeo clown was telling a little joke, and he said... As these carts, you know, they they do these races where they have these uh, wagons that are being pulled by all these horses. And he said, hey, as these wagons go around, if you're a little kid, step back from the fence. If you're a mother-in-law, stick your head through the fence. That was his joke. Notice that this picture of the Bible, a new family is created. There's this idea that that a man shall leave his father and mother. That when you get married, you are a new family unit. That's super important. If you're fighting with your spouse, your family or the place that you run to should not be your home. You should not call your mom or your dad to simply complain about your spouse. Your, 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 your spouse, your husband or your wife, that is your new family. That is the, the, the most central family you have other than the church. And you are, you're a new family and different from the family of your parents. Okay, so keep that in mind. You'll see this sometimes with what's called the cutting of the apron strings. You'll see this in, sometimes in a wedding where uh, a pastor, if I'm ever doing a wedding, I always say this to the parents explicitly. I say, this is a new couple, Parents help them, encourage them, you don't get a say on the main things that happen, okay? They can ask for your advice, but they're their own family. And so keep this in mind here. And then number three, uh, sex and marriage are not separated in the Bible. We have a tendency to separate those two things. That's why I said to have marriage, you have to have both covenant and consummation. Those two things go together. Sex is seen as the act of marriage. Number two, sex is the renewal of the covenant of marriage. So every time a husband and wife come together in an act of intimacy, they are re-saying their wedding vows. You know how some people after 10 years or whatever, they'll renew their wedding vows? There's a sense, though, in which you're married that every time you come together, you are renewing your wedding vows, all right? It's the renewal of the covenant of marriage. And then sex is often, not always, not always, but sex is often the litmus test for the health of your marriage. If I'm counseling a couple, a married couple, oftentimes I will ask them about how they're doing in this area. And I'm not asking that just as a random question. It's because if I know how you're doing in that area, I can pretty much tell you every other problem that's going on in your marriage, okay? Now, what is the purpose of marriage? Several purposes of marriage, okay? The first is this, and I think maybe the most important one is this. Marriage is meant to mirror the gospel. Marriage is meant to mirror the gospel. Nobody cares more about your marriage and your marriage succeeding than God. Do you know why? Because it says something about the gospel, okay? Uh, Why does God hate divorce? Because it says something about the gospel that's not true. God doesn't leave his people. He doesn't forsake his people. He doesn't go back on his covenants. So the first thing you need to realize is that marriage is meant to mirror the gospel, where a groom pursues a bride covenants to be good to her and to love her no matter what. That's what Christ does. He takes, a, he takes someone in the church, and he doesn't pick the prettiest girl at the ball. He picks someone who's broken. He picks someone who's cheating. He picks somebody who's dirty, and he washes her and cleanses her and redeems her, and that is the church. So there's many, many, many parallels between the gospel and marriage. I'll give you several of them. First, I just want you to get this idea. We just read in this text, where was Eve taken from Adam? From his rib, right? From his side. Out of Jesus' wounded side, because of his wounds, because of his wounded side, the church is born. All right, the church is born. You even see a parallel with that, that in the same way that woman is taken from the side of man, the church is taken from the side of Christ. But let me give you a few passages that talk about the marriage mirroring the gospel. Revelation 1, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Bible starts with and ends with a wedding. Okay? It starts with Adam and Eve with the wedding, and it ends with this bride of Christ, the church, being married to Jesus. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay? These are not the only passages that talk about this, but my first point on this is that marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Okay? Your marriage teaches something about Christ to yourself and to others. And what it teaches is that there is a loving groom that pursues a, br- pursues a bride, covenants with her, does good to her, marries her, and washes her in the water of the Word. What you see at the end of the Revelation passage that I just read is that Jesus has done with His bride what husbands are commanded to do with their brides, which is to uh, wash them in the water of the Word, which is to raise them up without any spot or blemish. Okay. Second purpose of marriage, to provide companionship. To provide companionship. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So here you have Adam, and he's commanded to subdue the earth and multiply. Super tough to do by yourself. And there's a bunch of fun animals, but that's not what he needs. The dog is nice. The dog is man's best friend. The dolphins, I mean, they make that funny sound. They're super smart. They're doing all kinds of tricks. But at the end of the day, Adam goes back and he says, Hmm... It's not the dog. That's not what I need. It's not the dolphin. And so what God does is he creates woman, and there is the idea of companionship, okay? So much of marriage is learning to have a friendship with your spouse. It is learning simply to have companionship, to have that person that you go to the store with late at night because you just don't want to go to the store by yourself, to have that person that you put your freezing cold feet against at night to get them warm, even though that wakes them up and freaks them out. Great purpose of marriage, to provide companionship. Number three, for sexual enjoyment. Okay. Again, we have a tendency to think that we invented this. This is God's idea, and it is God's gift gift to married couples for sexual enjoyment. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your fountain, that's a reference to the sexuality of your spouse. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So you see this praise that a husband is to delight in his wife. And conversely, a wife is to delight in her husband. Song of Solomon 5, 10 through 12. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. She's talking about her husband. Distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy. Black as a raven. His eyes are like dove beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. If that's not a description of Tim Hollis, I don't know what is, all right? (laughs) So there's this praising. There's this praising of her husband, but that's part of God's plan, okay? Um, What's really difficult is sexuality is one of those issues that before you're married, Every time or anything you have to do with sexuality is sinful, but then at the pronouncement of the minister, you're now able to enjoy your spouse. It's hard to flip that switch in your mind a lot of times to realize, no, 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 God doesn't hate sex. God hates sin. Those are not the same thing, okay? There are certain things that are okay in one context that are not okay in another context. Sex is kind of like fire in a fireplace. While it's in the fireplace, that's a good place for fire to be. It provides heat and warmth, and delight. But when it gets outside the fireplace, it burns the house down and kills a bunch of people. Okay? So, let the reader understand. Next, another purpose of marriage. To have... That's supposed to say and disciple children. Does yours say and disciple children? Mine says a disciple children. So I did more proofreading on yours than mine. To have and disciple children... That is part of the purpose of marriage. Again, you still have marriage even if you don't have kids. So don't feel like if you couldn't have kids or were unable to or something like that, you've somehow failed. That's not the idea. But there is this this uh, this there is this kind of secondary purpose to marriage, which is also to have children. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's this idea that you're supposed to have dominion and as you have children, Children, you raise them up to have dominion as well. That's part of the idea here. Every time I see somebody walking their dog at five in the morning, picking up that dog's droppings, I think to myself, take dominion. Take dominion. Why is that dog ruling you? You rule over that dog. Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Okay? And there's a lot of other passages that we could put in there where parents are told to teach their kids the word, to encourage their children, to not provoke them to anger, to discipline their children. But that is part of the purpose of marriage is to have and disciple children, okay? The next one, another purpose given for marriage is to fight temptation to sin, to fight temptation to sin. Let me read this passage and then I want to give a few comments on this. I think this is a really important passage that gets overlooked. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... So Paul's going to say, because you're tempted towards sexual immorality, what should you do? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, I've got a lot of comments on this. A few things I want you to see. Number one, Paul here provides a very practical way to fight against sin. So here's what's going on in in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth, there are a lot of people that are going to temple prostitutes, okay? They're saved out of paganism. They're already forgiven by Christ. But because they've lived sinfully their whole lives, they sometimes fall back into those old sinful patterns. And so they're going to temple prostitutes, and they're trying to figure out what they should do. And here's Paul's advice. You should get married. You should get married. Now, let me be very clear that will not fix their sin issue. And he's not saying that it will, okay? If you have a sin issue, sex is not the solution for a sin issue. Only the gospel is the solution for the sin issue, okay? But what Paul is saying is, here's at least a practical thing that you can do to make obedience by the Spirit easier. What he's saying is, stack the deck in your favor. Now, I think this is really interesting. We have a tendency sometimes to try to be holier than the Bible, If a guy came up to me and said, Zach, I've been going to temple prostitutes and worshiping demons and walking in sexual morality. Should I get married? I would say, you should never get married. You should go to like a recovery program for the rest of your life. Stop talking to me. That's what I would say. But that's not Paul's advice. Paul's advice is you should get married. Now, let's be clear. That's not going to fix your problem. It's not going to fix your lust problem. It's not going to fix your sin problem. What you're craving is not sex. You're craving sin. But what it does is it helps in the sense that you at least make it as easy to obey as possible because you have a venue provided by God where there's appropriate sexual expression okay so keep that in mind second thing is i want you to realize here that uh, it's not if your spouse struggles with some type of sexual sin okay you don't please don't raise your hand if your spouse struggles with some type of sexual sin it's not you versus your spouse it's you and your spouse versus the devil okay you need to see that Sex in your marriage is spiritual warfare. There's a tendency to think if there's some sort of conflict or problem in this area in your marriage, it's you versus your spouse. I'm so mad at them. They're messing up. I'm I'm so angry. Instead of saying, how can I help them? How can we team up against the devil? Or as I've heard one pastor say, if you will not provide for your spouse in this area, I know of a devil who will. That's what the text says. Come together again. Why? So that you're not tempted by the devil because of your lack of self-control. Another thing to mention here is notice that this is a regular part of marriage, okay? You do not have the right to deprive your spouse of these things. You do not have the right to deprive your spouse of these things. Husbands to wives or wives to husbands. It mentions both, okay? It mentions both. You don't have a right. We've talked about this. In our society, it's a really big thing right now to say, this is my body. It's my body, my choice. I'll do what I want with my body, etc. Biblically, though, that's not true. Biblically, it's God's body first. Uh, biblically, it's your spouse's body. Biblically, there's even a sense in which your body in some sense belongs into larger society because you can be recruited, you can be drafted, you can go to jail if you break laws, there's laws against indecent exposure, etc. So you're like fourth in line for your body, okay? So what this text is saying is that when you come together, when you uh, become a couple, when you get married, that there is a mutual ownership of each other and that you're not to deprive each other unless... You agree on it. If you both say, you know what, let's take a season off. Let's take a season to pray. We're going on a mission trip. We're doing something like that. Great. But other than that, do not deprive one another. Now, one more comment on that before we go to the next part. If your spouse struggles with some type of sexual sin, that is not your fault. Okay? You can be as faithful as you can be, and your spouse can still walk in sin. But all this text is saying is um, do your part to help. Do your part to fight against the devil with them. You guys are on the same team. On the same team. Okay, and then the next one here, to grow in holiness, to grow in holiness. Ephesians 5, 22 through 26. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with water. The word. If you want to know more about what that means, we have our Ephesians series online. You can listen to this text. Jeff also talked about the roles of men and women last week. You can, you can check that out online. But here's what this text is saying. Part of the purpose of marriage is to grow you in holiness. If you're a wife, as you learn to submit to your husband, you have to put sin to death. If you're a husband, as you learn to lead your wife, you have to put your preferences and your sins to death. So the purpose of marriage is for your holiness, not for your happiness. Okay. All of us, even if we know that, we go into marriage ultimately. The number one reason when I'm counseling a young couple, we're doing premarital counseling, they're going to get married, and I ask, why do they want to get married? The number one reason is, I want to be happy. I like this person. They make me happy. I'm happier when I'm with them than when I'm not. Me, 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 good things are going to come to me. All this marriage is about me. And I have to say, oh, oh, sweet child. Oh, dear sweet child. Marriage is a day-by-day crucifixion. Here's what I mean by that. Katie and I are doing fine, by the way. Here's what I mean by that. You know what do I mean by that? It's one-sided love. What is it to be crucified and say, forgive them, they know not what they do? That's one-sided love where you're just loving somebody even though they're not doing their part. That's marriage. Marriage is that one-sided love. I hear a lot of people say, marriage is all about compromise. No, it's not about compromise. It's about me sometimes saying, I'm going to just serve you and lay down my preferences. And my wife saying, I'm just going to serve you and I'm going to lay down my preferences. It is dying to yourself. It is getting rid of those things. It is to grow in holiness. That's the purpose of marriage. The reason we don't think that is because of Hollywood and because of songs and because of what is, uh, they call it on Bambi, because you get Twitter pated, you you start to feel this infatuation with another person. And so what we do is we, we, a lot of us get married for our own selfishness instead of saying, this is a burden that I'm going to take on. It's a good burden, okay? Marriage is like a magnifying glass. Your highs are higher, but your lows are lower. There is nobody I've loved more than Katie and there's nobody I've been more frustrated with than Katie, right? It's both. It's both. Kids do the same thing. It's a magnifying glass. It amplifies whatever is already in you, and it makes that sin come out. The problem is not your spouse. Your spouse simply exposes the problem that's in you, which is your sin. Right? It's like if I have a glass of Kool-Aid and I knock it over. Well, I just knocked it over, but that Kool-Aid was already in the glass. That's what marriage does. You have sin in your heart, and by being married to your spouse, fighting, going through life's trials, what that does is it knocks over the Kool-Aid, and you're like, look at the mess you made! And they're like, no, that mess was already in you. I just knocked over the glass. I just knocked over the glass, okay? Marriage is not for your happiness, though there are many seasons where it is very happy. Marriage is for your holiness. Marriage is for your holiness. I often wonder if, uh, how successful marriages would be if people simply said, the only reason I'm doing this is to glorify Christ and put my sin to death. I wonder how successful it would be. Because I have a tendency to think if you pursue Christ first, you might also get some of that happiness along the way, whereas if you just pursue your own happiness, you get neither. You get neither, Okay? All right, everybody good with the purposes of marriage? Everybody having fun? Was my comment about Tim weird? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's go over some interesting things about how marriage was done in the Old Testament slash the ancient Near East. I think a lot of us are familiar with marital customs, for example, in the United States, but we have a tendency sometimes, every time we interpret the Bible, to read our culture back onto the text instead of putting aside our presuppositions and just taking from the text. And so I want to give you some interesting things about how marriage was done in the Old Testament, okay? Some of these might sound a little weird, and I'm not saying we're bound by all these things today, okay? Some of these have to do with Old Testament Mosaic Law. So if it says to kill somebody, that doesn't mean we kill them today, okay, or something like that. So... But I just want you to know how marriage was done in the Old Testament and in what's considered to be the ancient Near East, so places like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, the places near uh, Israel. So, first of all, a woman was under the authority of her father until she got married. If her father passed away, she was under the authority of her oldest brother, okay? Sometimes if she didn't have either of those, she would be under the the authority of an uncle or a grandfather, but typically she had some sort of main man in her life as her authority. Uh, And then she worshipped whomever the main man in her life worshipped right? Uh, Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That's kind of the idea. So it was really the husband that determined the religion of the family in the ancient Near East. So this is part of the problem in the Old Testament of why Israel is not to marry other nations. It has nothing to do with uh, like modern day racism today or something like that. The idea is if you're not following Yahweh and you marry, let's say you're an Israelite woman and you marry some Canaanite guy, you're going to have to now worship his false gods, okay? A father was morally responsible for making sure his daughter married as a virgin, okay? So, if you're single in here, uh, you are biblically commanded to remain a virgin until you get married, but fathers, let me address you real quick. It's part of your job to make that happen. That's part of your job to make that happen. So, again, let the reader understand. Do whatever you need to do to help uh, preserve and guide your daughters. If you need help in that area, talk to Carl Brower. Carl Brower is our family minister. He has a lot of great insights of how to, uh, you know, not come off as some sort of uh, draconian, you know, uh, you can never go out and play with your friends or hang out with anybody kind of person, but at the same time, helping keep your daughters pure, okay? If a man found out that his wife was not a virgin on their wedding night, he could have her stoned to death in the Old Testament. If he accused his new wife of unfaithfulness, but she was faithful, then the man got whipped, fined, and he was never allowed to divorce her, okay? So it's a big gamble. There's this idea of purity being very important in the Old Testament, whereas if a uh, husband found out that his wife was not a virgin on their wedding night, she could get in trouble with the law. If he falsely accused her, though, all right, the Bible hates false accusations, he would be punished by the law as well, okay? A father or the oldest brother negotiated a marriage partnership on behalf of the bride and the groom. Okay? There are times, even in the Bible, where a groom took his own bride, but this is not the norm. So you have the idea in the Old Testament of an arranged marriage. To us, that seems super weird, until you look at the divorce rates and how crazy everybody is and how much struggle there, are, there is in marriage, and then you think, maybe my godly parents, who know more than me, might pick out a better spouse than me when I'm 18 that just wants to marry some hottie, Right? Okay, So there's some wisdom in that, but that's the idea in the Old Testament. Typically, uh, your family, specifically your father and mother, would negotiate with another family uh, for your spouse. Women were often married much younger than men who were expected to be able to provide a house and a living. The average age that a woman was married in the ancient Near East, specifically in Israel, was around 15, and the men were closer to 30. Okay, the men were close to 30. Why? Because a man has to be able to have a field and a house and provide for his new wife and have a home for her and these kind of things. So typically, you have older men marrying younger women within this context. Uh, that also allowed her to have more time to, uh, to have more kids. The mortality rate uh, for most of the world in the past was not great. We mentioned this during the Reformation lecture that Martin Luther was uh, one of eight siblings, only four of which made it to adulthood. Okay. The groom would pay what is called a bride price to the bride's father. Okay, the, the idea here is if you have a son, the son can grow up and he can get a job at this time and help provide for the family. With the daughter, that typically doesn't happen because she goes and gets married. So what a, a, a groom would do, a potential husband would do, is give what's called a bride price to that, uh, that girl's family. That way they were still taken care of, they were still protected, they were still provided for in that sense. Conversely, the bride's family would often give what's called a dowry to the groom slash the couple for their wedding. Okay, I, I like to make this joke that when I met Katie uh... her dad had actually passed away a month after we started dating uh... but she had a cherry red mustang and she had an ak-47 that she got and so that that was my dowry okay that was my dowry at, at our wedding i carried the ak-47 up to the altar i didn't do that okay so wedding parties weddings were really big deals how long does a typical wedding last in the united states wedding plus the reception how long four hours. yeah four hours that's a great great estimate that's that's almost exactly right probably about four hours maybe three Maybe less if you don't provide food or something like that. Uh, A lot of times in the Bible, you would have week-long or even longer wedding parties. So think about that. It was like, hey, my brother's getting married. Shut down your business for the next week. We're going to go party for a week. And there would be dancing and drinking and laughing. It's meant to be this huge celebration and joyful occasion. Why? Because it's meant to picture the gospel. Here's one of the things I love about God in the Old Testament that we have a tendency not to talk about. There are times where God demands that Israel not work that day and demands that they party, demands that they worship. Not sinful party. When I say party, don't think you woke up in the back of an El Camino and don't know how you got there. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that there's this idea of joy. There's this idea of laughter. There's this idea that this is a good thing. This is meant to picture the gospel. And so it often lasts a long, long time. Uh, The couple, I won't go into too much detail here. I don't want to be at all inappropriate. But the couple would often consummate the marriage before the reception because that is the act of marriage. We typically uh, have a wedding ceremony then the reception, and then later on there's the consummation of the marriage. Within the Old Testament, though, the consummation would happen before you would have the wedding reception because you're not fully married until you have covenant and consummation, okay? Covenant and consummation. Divorce was allowed in the Old Testament... But one must receive a certificate of divorce so that when they tried to get remarried, they wouldn't be seen as an adulteress. We're going to talk about this some more next week when we talk about divorce and remarriage uh, and the theology of it. But here's all I'm trying to say here. The idea in the Old Testament of giving someone a certificate of divorce was so that they could prove that they weren't an adulteress, right? So let's say you're a single guy and a woman just comes up to you and says, marry me. And you say, "Uh, I don't know, who are you? She said, well, I've been married before. You're like, are you still married? What happened? How do you know whether she's an adulteress trying to seduce you or whether or not she's actually gotten an Old Testament biblical divorce? The idea was that a husband had to provide his wife with a certificate of divorce. That way she could prove and say, look, I actually am divorced. I'm not cheating, etc. Okay. Adultery was a serious matter and the death penalty was called for in the Old Testament. Okay. Again, we're not under Mosaic law today. If there has been some type of infidelity in your marriage, there's grace in Christ to heal that and to work through those things. I'm just mentioning some of these ancient Near Eastern customs, specifically also in the Old Testament, okay? If a man had a brother who died before having children, the brother would have to have children on behalf of his dead brother, so his possessions and land would stay within the brother's family. So, if I've got a brother, and he's married, and he dies, what happens to his land? What happens to his possessions? What happens to his cattle? You see, this is really important, especially in ancient Israel, where the land is allotted up by tribe, and there's all this promises from the prophets and stuff about the land, et cetera. It's very important that that stays within that brother's lineage. So what I would do is I would often have uh, relations with my brother's wife who had passed away, so that way he, the, the, he, we could have children on his behalf, and those children would inherit his possessions. That's kind of a, a weird custom to us today, but that's something going on in the Old Testament. And lastly... It was important to pass down your lineage by having kids. Additionally, kids had the responsibility for caring for their aging parents. Let me say something that's strong. You know that passage in the New Testament where it says that if anybody doesn't provide for the members of his own family, that he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever? You know that passage? If you don't, just Google the words I said and it will come up, okay? That passage is not primarily talking about your job as a husband to put food on the table, although that's definitely included in there. Within the context, it's talking about caring for your aging parents, It's talking about not burdening the church with widows. What this text is saying is if you don't take care of your aging parents, in some sense, that doesn't mean they have to live with you, but you have some sort of responsibility to take care of your aging parents that you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong command. That's a strong command. So by having additional kids in this time, it allowed more venues to where you could provide, you could get care as you got older. You don't have social security and these kind of things in the Old Testament. What you have is kids. You have kids that realize that you're a family member, you're older, you should be honored, and so they help take care of you. Two more things, and then we'll have Jeff Ashley come up and just give us all the sweet wisdom in marriage. It'll be so good. He'll undo the bad things I did. Things needed to have a successful marriage, okay? These are biblical ideas, all right? These are not, I told you we wouldn't be doing seven steps to a healthy marriage or anything, so I just wanna, I do think these are some important biblical things that you need for a successful marriage. Number one is the most important, okay? A dependence on and a love for Christ. By the way, none of these are guarantees that your spouse won't just stab you in the back. I know of people that are godly and righteous and did just about everything right, and their spouse just abandoned them, okay? There's mercy and love and grace for you if that's you. So this is not a guarantee that when we we enter into a marriage, here's what a marriage is. You say to yourself, who is the sinner that I want to fight with for the rest of my life? That's marriage, okay? That's marriage. Five things needed to have a successful marriage. Number one, a dependence on and a love for Christ. That's the most important. When I talk to young guys and they say, what should I look for in a godly wife? I say the first and most important thing is she has to love Christ. Not just say she loves Christ. Not just have a warped Bible on her dashboard that she never reads. Not just have a fish on the back of her car. But she has to love Christ. She has to love Christ and vice versa. Ladies, if you start dating a guy and the first time he's ever cared about religious things is after he starts dating you, he's a fake. Don't date. okay? Don't date. You have to have a dependence and a love for Christ. Number two is a commitment to never get divorced. Don't talk about it. Don't threaten with it. Don't throw your wedding ring at somebody. Uh, A commitment to never get divorced. That's just not an option. Um, I talk about Navy SEALs a lot because I'm a wannabe. And one of the things I find to be interesting about them is 90% of the guys that go through their initial training, what's called BUDS, don't make it through. They drop out voluntarily. Why? Because that's an option when they're sitting there in the freezing water and they're tired and exhausted, they know that if they can ring a bell three times, they get to go get in a hot bath and eat donuts. Because they have an out, they're tempted to use that out. Okay? If they didn't have that, you'd have less of them dropping out. In marriage, you have no bell to ring out. In marriage, you're in that freezing water and you suffer and you just keep suffering. Okay? All right. It's so much fun. So much fun. I'm kidding. Lighten up, everybody. Take a big breath. We're just having fun. Okay. Like I've said before, why do we do theological equipping? To learn more about God's Word, yes, but also because it's fun, all right? Do things that are fun. A commitment to die to yourself and your selfish desires. I thought before I got married that I was a catch. I was like, man, whatever girl marries me, how lucky will she be? And then I got married and I thought, I am a scoundrel. I am selfish and I am evil and I want everything my way and I'm snappy. What happened? Well, all that evil was just in me. I just needed my spouse to knock over that Kool-Aid cup, Number four, this is one a lot of Christians don't think about, but it's super important. Let me say this as the community groups guy. A community of believers. You need other people looking into your marriage and giving you advice and critiquing you. When I make decisions, I don't just make decisions. I call several godly guys and say, I make dumb decisions sometimes. What would you do in this case? And I bounce ideas off godly people. Why? Because Proverbs says that there's wisdom with many counselors, okay? So what you need is you need community. You need other people that you can talk to about your marriage issues and your kids' issues and when you're fighting. And I've had to have those conversations to say, hey, Katie and I just got into a fight. Here's what she's saying. Here's what I'm saying. Where is she wrong? Where am I wrong? And my buddies can say, well, she's probably not, and it's mainly you. And I'm like, I hate you. Why are you my friend, right? You need community, though, to uh, help you walk through those things. And then lastly, number five. This one might be the, might be the most Number one and number five are, are tied for most important. Growing in your own personal relationship with Christ through spiritual disciplines. Bible study, prayer, worship, partaking of communion, hearing the preaching of the word, confessing sin, etc. Your primary relationship in your life is between you and God. It goes you and God first, then you and your spouse second, then you and your kids third, then everybody else fourth. Okay, then everybody else forth. But that primary relationship between you and God cannot suffer at the expense of your family. The best thing you can do, men, in leading your family is to be godly. If you love Christ, that will be infectious and it will affect your family. The best thing you can do, Christian mom, is to love Christ yourself. Your kids will see that. You'll, You'll be more gracious to them. You'll know better when you should and shouldn't discipline them. These kind of things. Let me say this. This is really important. What people need to have a better marriage and grow in their marriage is not seven steps to a better marriage or five ways to be happy though married or all these little kitschy dumb things. What we need is a better understanding of the gospel. What we need is better theology. If you realize that your marriage is about Christ's glory and you realize that your marriage is actually uh, uh, about God and you realize that it's not about you and it's about putting your sin to death and these kind of things, all of a sudden it's easier to give grace to your spouse. What you need is not five better ways to fight. What you need is to better behold Christ. What you need is to better understand the gospel. Jeff Ashley one time said something that just has always stuck with me. He said, the reason that I'll be faithful to my wife is because I know that there'll be a resurrection and I will give an account for that. And for me, that was just profound. That's very simple, that's very obvious, but his reason wasn't so I'd be happy or so I'd have a better marriage. It was my marriage was never about me to begin with. What you need is better theology. What you need is more trust in the gospel, not more newest, whatever the latest, greatest guru says are the steps for marriage. Now, lastly, we'll end with this. Um, We're not going to talk a lot about sex in this lecture because that's just not the, the main purpose. I have to talk about it some because it's linked to marriage. Again, it's, it's half of marriage in the sense of covenant and consummation. But I did want to go over a few helpful questions. One of the most common questions I've seen amongst Christian couples is, what is allowed sexually in marriage? Now, if you're freaking out, let me just be clear. I'm not about to say anything inappropriate. I'm not about to list specific acts or anything like that. I just want to give you some questions to wrestle through. If you have further questions. Please email us, call us. That needs to be one-on-one. So in a second, when we open this up to Q&A, you're gonna have to use some discernment, okay? Use some discernment in Q&A. There are certain questions that are good big group questions. There are other questions that are much better one-on-one questions, okay? Everybody good on that? If you start getting out of bounds, I will shut you down, okay? (laughs) What is allowed sexually within marriage? I'm just gonna give you nine questions to ask that I think would be helpful. So let's just go over biblically what the Bible would say about marriage. Anything outside of a monogamous marriage to your spouse sexually is sin that's pretty simple okay? that's pretty simple. That's what the Bible would call the Greek term there is porneia, porneia is kind of a junk drawer term it's kind of a catch all umbrella phrase for anything that is sexual sin it's where we get the term pornography, what is pornography? it is a graphe, a picture of porneia sexual immorality okay? uh, so <clears throat> anything outside of your marriage is sinful but within your marriage you actually have a lot of freedom to enjoy sexuality, so let's go over just a few questions, number one If you're asking this as a married couple, number one, does it involve in any way someone other than your spouse? If so, the answer is no, okay? This is why adultery is sinful. This is why pornography is sinful, et cetera. It involves someone who's other than your spouse. Number two, is it something with which your spouse is uncomfortable? Your job is to serve your spouse. Your job is to care for your spouse. So that's a question that you need to ask. Number three, am I just trying to please myself? Or am I trying to please my spouse? Your job as a husband or a wife is not to try to please yourself. It's to try to please your spouse, okay? Again, marriage is about serving one another. It's about laying down your preferences to serve your spouse. Number four, does this act make my spouse feel unloved or devalued? Does this act make my spouse feel unloved or devalued? Number five, I think this is a great question. I think this is a really good question. What things do I think are sinful in marriage that the Bible doesn't actually forbid? Those that are more liberal in their Christianity have a tendency to take away commands from the Bible. Those of us who are more conservative have a tendency to add commands to the Bible, both of which devalue God's Word. God's Word is perfect. We don't add to it or take from it. What things do I think are sinful in marriage that the Bible doesn't actually forbid? Four more. Does my spouse have any previous abuse in their past that might need to be worked through first? Okay, if you get married and there's some sort of abuse in your spouse's past, You need to get care. You need to get counseling. You need to see pastors or counselors or whatever it is to help work through those issues. Again, community involves pastors and and these kind of things as well. Number seven, in what areas do I have a false sense of shame or guilt, even though sex and marriage is good and God glorifying? I think that's a great question. Number eight, in what ways am I bitter with or not satisfied with my spouse and why? And then lastly, number nine, can I do this act in faith? This would be, if you're married, great series of questions to walk through with your spouse on a date or to walk through over dinner. Just y'all, just y'all, not kids or something like this. Just y'all, but to walk through these things, okay? Work through this issue.